It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. I recently had our next guest on our television show, um, but I knew who he was long before that. Uh, We have several friends in common, and the consensus among all those who know him is that he is smart and kind and an effective communicator. Uh, Any of those three qualities alone would make you successful, but when you have all three of those, uh, that's pretty good. Arthur Brooks is a professor, an author who used to run what I call a think tank or a public policy tank might be more apt. Um, I wanted to have him on because our country is uh, at an inflection point, or so we're told. Most don't like the track we're on. Most are worried about the institutions we once relied upon, and that can lead to fear and anger and isolation yeah, I had a colleague in the House who rose to the highest levels of government before he got out of politics altogether, and he used to say he wanted to do more than simply manage the decline hmm. of this great experiment in self-governance, that we could do better, and that our best days might possibly be ahead of us. I mean, do we still believe that? I mean, managing the country might be a heavy lift for most of us, so why don't we just start with managing ourselves? Uh, and see if we can be the best us we can be. With that, welcome Dr. Arthur Brooks. Thank you, Trey. Great to be with you. Great to be with your audience. Thank you for having me on the television show. Well, that was t- quite something. I, 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 we recorded it a few days before, and and then I started getting all all people from all walks of life started texting me, at, you know, on Sunday night, and it gave me great satisfaction to know that people are tuning into your show in such numbers. Well, you're kind to say that. It would make me wonder why I had so many friends that weren't watching pro football. That's what I wonder <laughs> when my friends on Sunday night text me. I, That's I'm a wondering. sign of national decline, right? <laughs> I mean, you could be watching Dallas kick a game-winning field goal, or you could be watching me, And I, but I'm grateful for all of those. Yeah, right, absolutely. There seems to me, I don't know what the right word, I'm going to use the word angst. There seems to be an angst among the citizenry, a belief that our best days are behind us. And to that, you would say what? I would say it's a natural thing for people to believe um, because there are a lot of people in very powerful positions that make a lot of money and get a lot of power and get a lot of followers by instilling fear. I mean, there's kind of an outrage industrial complex in this country that's taken hold, particularly over the past 10 years, giving us a fear polarity in American politics. So it's very normal if you're you know, just going about your life, watching the media, listening to politicians, God forbid, lurking on social media to think that everything's going to hell. I mean, that's just what you're being told constantly. I mean, it's the same thing as what we regret about kids in schools today. That's what we were talking about on your show, on the television show. I mean, yeah, it's like kids in schools are being told that the world is a dangerous, terrible place, and they should be very, very afraid. So guess what? They are. Well, the same thing is true for the adults in this country. And if we want it to get better, we need to reframe the entire debate, number one, based on facts, that this is still the greatest country, and it still has incredible promise. And number two, 
uh, mobilizing ourselves to live up to that promise. Those are the challenges. All right. You, you, you said something that I think I first heard sometime within the past decade. I, I can't remember who said it, probably one of your friends, or it may have been you. And that is that we have managed to monetize fear and anger. And right. those are the dominant forces in politics. I mean, I don't think it's always, I mean, I'm so old. I now talk about the good old days. I, maybe they weren't so good. I don't remember it always being like that. Am I, am I, am I wrong? Am I? <laughs> well, you know, the truth of the matter is that we tend to go in cycles. And so we can find worse times than now. Absolutely. Most of the 19th century was worse than now when it came to polarization. I mean, for goodness sake, we had a civil war in the 19th century. I mean, there were not the, the, the ways for us to resolve our differences that we currently have. And there was more bitterness than we currently have. Um, and that went way before the civil wars too, uh, the civil war as well. We also find that we go in kind of 50 year cycles in American politics. You know, people who talk about the radicalism in American politics today, the polarization, the fear. I was talking to the filmmaker, Ken Burns about this. You know, and Ken Burns, he's probably the greatest documentary filmmaker in the past hundred years, a visionary guy. And he had just finished his fabulous, you know, multi-part documentary series on Vietnam. And he and I were talking about something else because we're friends. And I said, I was kind of lamenting all this. It's like, ah, oh, it's never been this bad. He said, what are you talking about? He said, let me ask you, how many domestic bombings for political reasons happened in the United States in 1968 and 1969? I'm like, I don't know. He said 700. 700 domestic political bombings in this country. And, and, and he made the point, and subsequently, I think I've, I've, I've found reinforcing evidence uh, that bears it out, that we go in about 50-year cycles of this kind of polarization. You know, we can't expect the Reagan years forever. And we go in these cycles, and, and these are, we can look at it in two ways, Trey. We can say, woe is me, you know, these jerk politicians and, you know, media people are feeding at the trough and driving us against each other. We can say, this is an opportunity to bring us back together again for citizen leaders to say, I'm going to bring my family and my community back together again because things are bad. And that's when leaders lead is what it comes down to. So I propose that we see it as a, a 50 year trough, not as bad as it's been in the past and an opportunity to get to our best years. All right. I was a prosecutor before I went to Congress. We're not known for our happiness. Uh, pe pe people do not invite us to, to make them feel better. So I want to, but I want, I want to talk about that in a second, but I first got to get the prosecutor out of me and ask one more kind of moribund question. Yeah. And I don't know which came first. Were we given this steady supply of negativity and anger and we just had to adapt to it or is that what we craved and therefore our leaders gave it to us? Yeah, that's a really good question. I like that question an awful lot. And the truth is when you've got a market, leaders are actually followers. You know, most CEOs are followers. They, they discern market demand and give people what they want. Most politicians are followers. They, they figure out what's kind of in the culture. And then we'll always say, oh, these politicians, they're just giving us this fear, this bitterness, this polarization. No, I mean, you know, they're creatures of the, of the environment. That, now, now, that said, great and inflecting leaders can turn things around. I remember in the late 1970s, you know, going into, I mean, I was a kid and you were a kid. We weren't voting in the 1980 election, of course, but, but we knew what was going on in 1980. And that was really quite bitter. It was coming out of the 1970s on the, on the, on the heels of the things that we talked about and the Iran hostage crisis and the OPEC oil cartel and, and, and the, you know, the, the relatively catastrophic presidency of Jimmy Carter and, and nobody could get along. And, 
And the Republicans were very pugilistic, just as the Democrats were. And and we got Reagan. So what's the deal? The answer is that. They, and, and, and by the way, one thing is really worth keeping in mind. Reagan in the 1980 campaign, in his acceptance speech in Detroit, coined make America great again in the context of bringing everybody into the tent, especially immigrants. Oh, what irony there is in American politics where the most unifying statement of American greatness can be turned in a polarizing way in American politics. I mean, like or love the last president. The point is, there's nothing new under the sun. We just have a different spin on it. And we can make this better. Okay, the politicians, they follow until we get one who doesn't. And that's the magic moment. All right. You you aptly said there's nothing new under the sun. Everything is a footnote to either Plato or Jesus. So I'm going to go back. <laughs> I'm going to go back a little bit in time. You wrote something recently about Seneca, or you made reference to Seneca. Yeah. And it, it was approaching, this is a very poor paraphrase, and I hope that you will correct it. It is approaching life and death with the same attitude. What did he mean by that? What did you mean by that? And how do we do it? So Seneca was, uh, was a Stoic philosopher. He was the, you know, the par excellence Roman Stoic philosopher. So the Stoic uh, uh, school of philosophy started in ancient Greece. And it basically talked about taking the world as it's given, acting virtuously, notwithstanding your feelings. It was really about mastering yourself. That's what Stoic philosophy was all about. It's having a real renaissance, by the way. I mean, a lot of people are following it. I have a, I have a guy I pal around with named Ryan Holiday, who writes these huge bestsellers based on Marcus Aurelius and Cicero and all these oldsters back in the, you know, the, the, the nether regions of time. Uh, Seneca was one of these great Stoic philosophers. He was also a uh, he was a, a uh, he was an advisor to Nero, right? I mean, it, it just shows you, you know, once there's nothing new under the sun. He was, and you know, people would ask me, Nero is such a bad guy. What's the deal? Basically, I mean, not exactly in those words, obviously. And he would say, "Well, it'd be worse if I weren't advising him." <laughs> Sounds familiar, you know, the way people are advising politicians still today that are controversial for sure. And Seneca, he had a very balanced approach to what life is all about. You know, it don't basically all it can all boil down to don't freak out. Just don't freak out. Just do what needs to be done. And if it's really bad, make it better. If it is really good, don't count on it lasting forever. And you'll have a happier life and you'll bring more happiness to other people. Let's just be grownups about this whole thing, right? And, and I think it's, a, it's a, the kind of balanced approach that's incredibly helpful for all of us. For me, it's really helpful because, well, I mean, for example, I, I'm a dad, you know? I, and, and not that long ago, I had three teenage kids. Not anymore. They're all grown up, right? And the best advice I ever got was from the Stoics to not freak out. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Marcus Aurelius. I guess I, I, I did not. I guess I knew that he was part of the Stoicism movement. That that actually, I mean, if I were to have to pinpoint kind of my philosophy of life, uh, that probably comes closer than than Albert Camus or 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 some of those. Oh heck yeah! I mean, this is really what led to the to the early Christian belief and and you know the dignity of humanity and the maintenance of one's self in the presence of God. A lot of that ported right over the, from the Stoic philosophers. They were pagans. I mean, they were not they were not Christians. This was pre-Christian, largely. I mean, not Seneca because he was at the time of Nero, who was killing Christians by the handfuls, right? By the by the thousands, actually. But the and and Marcus Aurelius, who was the Roman emperor 
and, and is remembered as a Stoic philosopher only because people found his self-improvement diary notes written to himself that just so that he could be a better emperor. And he was also persecuting Christians. But the point is, it's so interesting that Christians incorporated these ideas from persecutors, and it became known kind of as, as this equanimity that good Christian people are supposed to believe in. And yeah, you know, this is the tradition you and I grew up in. Well, I am not going to go into the Bible too much because number one, it would disappoint my mom and my wife how little <laughs> I paid attention in Sunday school. But I do seem to recall the Apostle Paul saying, there are no leaders except those which God has put in place. Yeah. And I wondered who was on the throne in Rome when he said that. And I'm thinking it was probably someone that we would find to be uh, not good, reprehensible. Mm -hmm. And if he could say that in those times, I, I, I do wonder sometimes why we have trouble believing that now. Yeah, I mean, St. Paul reminded us that we are in this world, but we're not of this world as Christian people. And, and that's, an, that's a very ancient idea that came from the Jews, of course. It's also shared by the Muslims and many other religions around the world. If you have a divine perspective on life, you don't insist on everything being perfect in the mortal coil, right? I mean, how could it be? And, and by the way, this is one of the reasons that people who have a strong religious conviction, they're very comfortable working on improvements to the world that will outlast them. That's the reason that religious people have more kids than non-religious people, because they're investing in the future world beyond their own grave. They're talking about, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll be working on ideas that will never come to fruition, probably, on, on things that seem like doomed projects, like trying to make something better that might not bear fruit for 100 years. That's why religious people do it, because they have a super long time horizon, and they're not counting on leaders and circumstances right now being perfect. There's all kinds of reasons, by the way, even if you're a very orthodox Christian believer to think that we might not have the best possible president of the United States. There's all kinds of things that we need to learn. There's all kinds of challenges that we need to experience so that we can be called to our best selves, so we can be called to personal leadership and stewardship of this world, improvements that can lift other people up and bring them together in the spirit of our, of our Lord and Savior. And if you're not a Christian, your version thereof. Speaking of the best version of ourselves, I think we all sort of know that the mind and the body are connected, but we sometimes neglect one or the other and sometimes both. I yeah. think you wrote recently, it may have been in the same piece, you may have been referencing Seneca, that people as they age, the ones who do the best are the ones who take care of their minds and their bodies. What connection have you found between the two? Well, this is the temple. You know, the whole idea that, that you know, we, we, we're not in a disembodied kind of floating mind out there. You know, that, that whole concept is, is sort of this Gnosticism of this, you know, secret knowledge of these ancient sects, these ancient cults that basically said that the body doesn't really matter, that the brain doesn't really matter. What matters is, is simply the soul. It's just... And, and we know that that's not true. The truth of the matter is that, that the way that we live our lives has to be very, very integrated, that we have a responsibility to take care of our hearts and our minds and our souls and our bodies and to help other people take care of theirs as well. And so that integrated approach is really critical. Now, I teach happiness at a university. I'm a professor at Harvard. I teach happiness at the Harvard Business School. And when I talk about that, I'm not just like, let's get in touch with your feelings. There's almost no feelings involved in it at all. It's all about self-management, understanding the processes of the brain, 
taking care of all of the different aspects of your life, including the physical aspects of your life so that you can be maximally effective and you can be passing on these ideas to other people. This is an integrated approach to the life that we all want to live. We're going to pause right there. More of my interview with Arthur Brooks is next. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. You mentioned happiness. You are known as a professor uh, and an ambassador of happiness, whatever title people want to bestow on you. The happiest person I know, believe it or not, Arthur, is my wife. Yeah. Uh, right. And it is, she doesn't follow the news at all. I'm not, honestly, I'm not hundred percent sure she knows I was in Congress. I was going to say, was she aware her? that you were, you know, <laughs> my son, my, my husband has a job in Washington, DC and he's gone during the week. I, I don't know. You know, <laughs> he's, he's gone a lot and people seem to hate him, but I don't know what he does. Uh, <laughs> so she fills her mind with the Hallmark channel while I'm watching British crime dramas about terrible people doing terrible things. What are some common sense, practical things that people can do to kind of pursue happiness and not yeah. the feeling, but what you describe? Yeah. So my, you know, the, the first thing to keep in mind is that happiness is not a feeling. Happiness has feelings associated with it, but you know, happiness is not a feeling any more than your Thanksgiving dinner is the smell of the turkey. That's evidence that there's Thanksgiving dinner, right? And so you have to work on the real phenomenon. And that's a combination of enjoyment in your life and satisfaction in your accomplishments and meaning and purpose, which also, by the way, requires a whole lot of suffering and sacrifice because nobody finds meaning without suffering and sacrifice. Sacrifice is very sacred is a key thing. And I have to explain that to my students. But then once we understand that, those are kind of the macronutrients of happiness, you can put together a plan for getting those things by having that, by looking at the habits of the happiest people. One of the people I'd study is your wife or, or mine, Trey. My wife is like a nine on a one through 10 scale of happiness. I'm, I'm my good days. I'm like a five or a six. That's the reason I study it. You know, it's, it's like, it's me search, not research, man. Anyway, so, <laughs> and, and when you look at the habits of the happiest people, there's 10,000 studies or what are the habits of the happiest people? And most of it's really trivial. You know, do they do more, you know, do they do more cardio or more resistance training? Whatever. Do they eat more rutabagas or radishes? Whatever. That stuff's boring. It really comes down to four things. This is like your happiness 401k plan. These are the things you got to put investments in every single day with no exceptions. Your faith, your family, your friendships, and serving other people with your work, your meaningful work. And now your faith doesn't necessarily mean my faith. I'm a Catholic. I recommend it to everybody. It's awesome. But I'm looking at the data and even people who are not traditional religious believers, if they have a, a philosophy of life that gives them peace and perspective from, you know, my job, my TV, my money, my house, my community, it's so boring, man. It's so boring that you need to back up. You need to back up. There's lots of ways to get that. Your family life, look, one in six Americans is not talking to a family member today because of politics. That is insanity. That is stepping over $100 bills to get the nickels. It's a bad practice. Number three is friendship. We have a loneliness epidemic in this country. A lot of people have a lot of deal friends, but not very many real friends. And we know the difference between them. And last but not least, you got to have work where you earn your success, where your skills and accomplishments can, can be rewarded and, 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 uh, and acknowledged, which comes most from capitalism, by the way. It's one of the reasons that capitalism and free enterprise are a happiness engine in the labor market. 
And second, and, 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 and even more important, is serving other people who need you. This is the key thing. If you believe that you're serving other people, you know who they are, you will love your work. Faith, family, friends, and work, man, that's it. Those are the big four. And if you have a plan and a strategy to not neglect them, not over-indexing on work, which we all do, it's like, oh yeah, I'll do other work, which is basically neglecting the others is like putting all of your pension in Greek bonds. You know, it's like, I don't know, man. I mean, it could work out, but I don't recommend it. You know, I'm an economist. I'm going to tell you, it's like, did you pray or meditate or study the scriptures or read the wisdom literature today or not? Did you call your mother or did you not or whoever? Did you cultivate a real friendship? And you, you're going to, you need between two and four and only one can be your spouse. Real friends, real friends, by the way, they're useless, by which I mean, they're not useful, <laughs> right? They're not excessively useful to you. Um, you just love them. Are you cultivating those friendships, even though you don't have to? And last but not least, are you serving other people with your work and are you earning your success? If you can answer affirmatively to those four questions, you're going to be in the upper quadrant of happiness or you're going to be moving in that direction. You will probably remember, I think it was either Tolstoy or Dostoevsky who said the essence of life is human service. I mean, yeah. the essence of life is serving other people. Yeah. I, you did not mention politics. I'm going to mention it only because I do think it is the source of a lot of unhappiness in people, and certainly the people that I bump into at the grocery store. And and my thought, I mean, we have, there, there was a time where I guess we would debate what the top marginal tax code should be. There was a time we should debate who had the best, you know, border policy. But now it seems, Arthur, that the debate is, your side will result in the end of life as we know it. Yeah. The other side, it, it's so hyperbolic. I mean, yeah. we if you're a progressive, we sur you survived eight years of George Bush, and we are still a republic. And if you're a conservative, you survived eight years of Barack Obama, and we're still a republic. We're resilient. So when did it become in vogue that the argument is, if you vote for the other side, it is the end of life as we know it? Yeah, that's a convergence of two phenomena. The first is this kind of republic of fear that we talked about at the very beginning of the conversation, where there are very strong influences that are dedicated for you know profit motives, whether they're pecuniary or they're financial or not, you know, people are making a benefit from, from freaking us out. We're fearful. That's number one. Number two is the, as religion, as actual religion starts to decline, you know, including among apparently religious people, by the way, people are, who are apparently religious, many are actually practicing less than they did 20 years ago. Something's got to go in that slot in their life. You know, the great essayist David Foster Wallace said, everybody worships something, you know, because it is the essence of human nature to worship. And I've got a whole bunch of very interesting research that shows that people worship. They that's just we're wired to worship. And you can you can maybe you agree with me that that's how God made us. And maybe you think that that's just some weird anomaly sitting on the human genome someplace. But whatever it is, people worship. And if religion, actual religion is in decline in your life, whether it apparently is or not, if you're worshiping traditional, traditionally less, you're going to worship something more. And for a lot of people, the savior comes politically. And when that happens, then we get these apocalyptic terms. Look, the apocalypse is a religious concept. And so everything is. If I don't win 100%, then we're, you know, it's the Antichrist and we're going to hell. If, if that person is elected and, you know, this is the most important election in human history or in American history or something like that, that's religious language. That's all or nothing language. That's Manichaean 
is what we would call it. And that's really dangerous. And my view is, look, if you're going to worship, worship something that's worth worshiping. I mean, man, I loved you when you were in Congress, but I don't think that you're, you know, that you're supernatural. You're a guy, you know, we're all doing the best we can here. And, and, and elevating, Cong elevating Congress, elevating the presidency, elevating the government or, or, or denigrating people as if they were somehow subhuman or diabolical. It's a huge error. I don't know if you're ever going to run for office, Arthur. My next question is going to be proof to you that I will never run for anything ever again. Uh, but, uh, you know, in my defense, I've also said this in the churches that I've spoken to. I, there's yeah. been a marriage between certain religious uh, groups or philosophies and political parties, and I think it has absolutely devastated the church. And yeah. I'm not – there may be electoral success for the parties, but I think it has hurt – the cause of Christ. Uh, you mentioned we may be less religious. Why? I guess is yeah. why. Why would we? Why would we be less spiritual than we were 25, 50 years ago? So we're a little less spiritual and a lot more religious. That's what the data say. So what you find is that year I was I was born in 1964, and the year I was born, three percent of adults said that they were they had no religious affiliation. Three. Now it's in the 30s. It's in the mid 30s. And it's about 50% of people under 30 say they have no religious affiliation. Still, 18% of Americans are either spiritual or religious. So it's only are, are neither spiritual nor religious is what I meant to say. So it's only like one in five that has this, but that's a big expansion on what it was before. What happens is that that people are, are, are just not practicing as much. And so they have this kind of emptiness in their life. And that follows kind of a sine wave, you know, during, at the beginning of the American revolution, you know, at the beginning of the Puritans and, you know, colonizing the United States in the 17th century, people were very religious. I mean, my first ancestor in North America, Henry Brooks in 1630, who, you know, was somewhere around where I'm sitting now in Massachusetts you know, he was a Puritan. He was a, you know, he, he actually came to the United States for religious reasons. By the time of the American Revolution, a long time later at that point, people were pretty a-religious. And the American founders were sort of deists, but kind of, you know, kind of, sort of. And we would look at them pretty suspiciously today, I have to say, in the way that they, you know, good for them. They did a whole lot of good. But the whole point was they were in a cycle, kind of a trough of religiosity. Religiosity came back religiosity waned. It waxes and it wanes and we're due for a new evangelization. So people who are listening to us were, you know, they, they, if you want to be a missionary, start with your, start with your neighbors, you know, and, you know, and, and they say, oh, your neighbor's like, oh yeah, I go to church. Really? Do you, do you believe it? Is it more important than, than what you're watching on cable TV at nine o'clock? <laughs> Cause it seems to me that you're spending a whole lot more time watching cable TV than you are on your knees in prayer. Just saying, right. And, and if that's the case, then we have to actually think about what our priorities are, where we're actually, where our heart is there. There you will find my treasure, right? Is where my heart is. And, and, and that's the biggest problem. But is again, this is a huge opportunity for us. Yeah. I, uh, I like to ask people and I do it in a respectful way. And I'm asking myself at the same time, are you a believer who participates in the political process or are you a Republican or Democrat who attends church? Yeah. What, what is your identity and what is yeah. your primary I identity? And, uh, all right, well, well, politics is going to mess up your church politics. Yeah. I don't care what your church is. I don't care what the politics is. 
Well, basically, that's like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to spread, you know, brown sugar all over my main course of my dinner. You know, that's it's not it, it sounds good. Maybe I don't know. Probably it doesn't. It's not going to make it better. The bottom line is it's not going to it's going to spoil it is what's going to happen. Politics always spoils faith. Uh, you say it more artfully, like I would expect a, a someone with a doctorate to do. I just say it ruins <laughs> it ruins everything. It yeah. just it ruins yeah. everything. Yeah. All right, I want to talk about something happy because you're known for happiness. I don't know if it was if it was either Tim Scott or Paul Ryan that for the first time said you would really, really, really like Arthur Brooks because he is into persuasion, which is what prosecutors are into. Yeah. That's all you do is you persuade people who could not get out of jury service and have not already made up their minds. That's what we do. Yeah. I see almost none of that in politics yeah. anymore. It's all ratification and, and, and validation. Well, yeah. is there still room for someone like an Arthur Brooks that likes to persuade? Yeah. Well, I'm doing my best. And, 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 you know, I, I feel your pain, Trey. Um, but basically here's, I think more or less how to think about it. Persuasion is the highest art of the Enlightenment. You know, if you look back at pretty much everything that Benjamin Franklin, who was our greatest Enlightenment philosopher in the United States, wrote about, he was talking about how beautiful it is to persuade other people and to do so in a virtuous way. Why? Because when people disagree and one person persuades another, or in the case of our marriages, when we persuade each other, we're both better off because we both actually have new knowledge. We have a new way of thinking that's, that creates more value than our old way of thinking. That's how persuasion works. Here's the problem. Persuasion is new and it's ahistoric and it's not natural for people. The really natural thing is coercion, is force. And so what we see is a periodic reversion to force, you know, because that's the human way. You know, I, you, got, you got three cattle and I've got one cattle and, and I'm going to take one of your cattle because I can you know, because, you know, might makes right. That was the way of the world until the, you know, one of the reasons that we're such a prosperous society is because the enlightenment made it possible for us to persuade each other when we disagree and not hate each other and keep working together again and again and again without force and violence. The first time in human history, that was the innovation of the enlightenment was persuasion. You were in the enlightenment business as a prosecutor. I'm in the enlightenment business trying to convince people of different ways of thinking. But we always go back to coercion and we're in a moment of coercion. If you come onto a college campus, you're going to see it. Cancel culture, you know, getting kicking people off campus who disagree, firing people for ideological differences, pure coercion. You know, and universities should be persuasion machines. The competition of ideas should reign supreme. This, this marketplace of concepts, that's what universities were made to do, actually. Literally, literally, they were made to do that. And they've gone to coercion as well. So it's not just politics. In the middle between them is negotiation, by the way. If you can't persuade and you don't want to coerce or you don't have the force, then you divide up the spoils and go your separate ways. That's what negotiation is really all about. But the highest goal, the highest human goal is persuasion. You know, I was talking about that. I was lecturing on that today for, with my graduate students. And I, I talked about this. Look, I mean, nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement. Never. It's never happened. You know, it's like I've never walked away from a disagreement saying, you know, it's true. I am a moron. You know, never. And, I, and so the whole idea that you can coerce people and get a permanent agreement, you know, going in a particular direction is complete insanity. When people are like, oh, yeah, here's how we're going to resolve our political differences. It's really simple. We're going to get the House and we're going to get the Senate and we're going to get the White House and we're going to have the Supreme Court and we're going to have it forever. It's like, what are you smoking, man? 
I mean, don't you know anything about history? If you're going to coerce people on party line votes, you're not going to give anybody else what they want. It's my way or the highway. You're setting yourself up to have it turn completely and then be on the and be getting the short end of the stick. And that's exactly what we've got. America's a ping pong match. And the people who are, you know, it's like now the Republicans, now the Democrats, now the Republicans, now the Democrats. And the Republicans are trying to tell you right now, as are the Democrats, if you give me both houses and the White House and the Supreme Court, all will be well. Well, guess what? That's coercive politics and you lose because it's unstable. You better get into the business of persuasion or it's going to be a pretty bad for pretty long. You know, when I left the house, I guess I could have written a, a, a kiss and tell book, although I didn't kiss any of my colleagues. I guess I could have written a kiss. And <laughs> I'm tell happy to book. hear that, Trey. <laughs> well, and they, they are. Uh, well, the ones I hung around with weren't uh, weren't all that kissable. But uh, <laughs> I. I wrote a book on persuasion because I do think it matters. And that's yep. what lawyers do. And and so when I give a, a talk on it, you just almost verbatim said something I tell the audience. No one has ever been insulted into changing his or her mind for any length of time. In fact, I think what it does, Arthur, is, and I've seen it, I mean, people are more likely to say, I don't care if you're right. I will never agree with you because you insulted me. Hmm. It's great. At, at, it's great at getting an applause line. It's great at ratifying people who already agree with you, but it is lousy at persuading. Totally. It's just virtue signaling. You know, it's just locking down your own side. It's just base consolidation. That's all it is. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have. Look, if you're trying to convince people who are already convinced, you're a pretty bad lawyer, you know, and you're, and you're not setting your own cause forward at all. All you're doing is just satisfying your own base impulses, it's a huge mistake and it's really bad politics too. It's, it's uh, you know, it's funny because I've talked to a lot of business people about that, about, you know, what do you, you know, people who are very successful in business, you know, good, you know, people who, you know, made a ton of deals. You know, what they all say is that what they don't admire about politics today is this attitude that if I don't get a hundred percent of what I want, I'm effectively getting zero. That's crazy. What good business people have in common is when they're working on a deal with somebody else, they go out of their way to not get it all. You know, even if you could fleece the other guy, even if you could just run the table, you don't do that because you want people happy when they walk away from the bargain and not find out down the road they got they got kind of a a bad deal. And you want them to come back and do business with you again and again and again. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if Democrats said, I I want the Republicans, even though I've got the majority to get something what they want so that we can actually want to work together again in the future. And Republicans say the same thing. And like, I get it. I know the structural difficulty in doing that. And I know some people are shaking their heads going, those Democrats will never do it or Republicans fill in the blank. Right. But the truth of the matter is until we actually start getting some of that and, 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 and it's not impossible, Trey, I live in Massachusetts. You know, I know it's like great for a conservative like me, right? Actually, it is great because we have the best governor in America. You know, we got Charlie Baker. He's literally the most popular governor in the United States. He has 70% popularity. He's a Republican in Massachusetts. It's like, what did he do? I mean, did he like put something in the drinking water that's got us all anesthetized or, or, you know, mildly stoned? What's the deal? The only people who hate Charlie Baker are Republicans who say my way or the highway or ultra left-wing liberals who say the same thing. All the rest of us are like, you know what Charlie does? I know him. And, and the reason, the, the secret to his greatness is not that he does everything that I like. He does a lot of things that I disagree with as a conservative. But what he does is he said, let's think about the 70% we all kind of agree on and let's work on that. And let's, 
let's make sure that at least 90% of our time is spent on the 70% of things that we all agree on, as opposed to what's going on in Washington, where 75% of our time is in the 10% or the 30% or whatever percentages you're working on. You get my point. That is a really, and that's going on all over the country. Doug Ducey's doing that in Arizona. Um, uh, you see this and, you know, Larry Hogan is doing this in Maryland. You get people in purple states who are Democrats and they have a lot of popularity and they're very effective and vice versa. And, you know, I'm not going to agree with them. I get it. But I like the progress. And I want to ask you about what has become the ultimate political virtue, which is fame. <laughs> fame is, is all that seems to matter. It is not how hard you work for your constituents. It's not legislative achievement, which as a conservative, I would not cite legislative achievement as the number one thing, but, 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 but nor would I set cite fame. Fame is not a virtue. So no. what, when did that come about and why did it come about? Well, so fame, interestingly, is, is you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, in 1265, he writes the Summa Theologica, which you know most people haven't read, but we all actually are influenced by it because that was the document and he was the philosopher who actually brought Aristotle back. So today we'd all be reading only Plato, but everybody knows who Aristotle is and every college kid reads Aristotle because of St. Thomas Aquinas in 1265. And based on Aristotelian philosophy, Aquinas said that there are four substitutes for God, right? So in other words, he says people naturally want God. But it's inconvenient. Lots of rules, a lot of one-sided conversations. I got it. People have a hard time believing in it. So they take these divine substitutes, which of course are idols. And the four idols, which are exhaustive for all people, are money, power, pleasure, and fame. He called it honor. You know, and that has a different connotation. You know, I've got a son in the U.S. Marine Corps who's, who serves with honor. That's a good thing. That's not what I mean. But fame is what you're talking about, which is glory of the world, which is the admiration of strangers, right? It's this weird thing to want. So Aquinas is like, that's just idolatry. It's just simply idolatry. And the society will, will blow up certain idols at sometimes more than others, right? And right now we're in this incredible moment of the idolatry of fame. Now, interestingly, the data are very clear that you can't be the fame is the only idol that you can pursue that you think you'll be happy if you get it. And you never are. You never are. You're only ever happy in spite of being famous. And so I'm sure that you found this because, you know, you're a big name in Congress because you had a lot to say. People knew who you were. If you're paying attention to Congress, you know who Trey Gowdy is. Your happiness was not tied to that. On the contrary, you're happy as a person in spite of that. You're happy because of your family. You're happy because of your faith. You're happy because you served. You were happy in spite of being famous because being famous is royal pain is what it turns to. But it's addictive because it's an idol. And that's really what's happened. And most of our means of communication, most of the modern technology that we rely upon makes it easier and easier and easier. Look, you talk about kids getting addicted to social media. You know, the biggest social media junkies I know are congressmen. You know, <laughs> I'm telling you, they're like they're on Twitter all the time. It's like, dude, get off of Twitter. It's like you got a needle hanging out of your arm. Yeah. It's just absurd. <laughs> People don't know this, but it's true. Oh, no, you're a hundred. I remember sitting on the floor of the house and I would, of course, I, I, I never, I couldn't tell you the color of the eyes of 90% of, of my colleagues because they were all looking down at some device. And, and a lot of them, Arthur, would be going through, Facebook was a big thing back then. And, and I'm sitting here thinking how you can inhabit the praise or criticism of people who have never met you and know right. nothing about you. I just... Right. 
It, I mean, you're you're too smart to fall for that. I mean, someone who's never met you, why would you care? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, if you if you wouldn't let somebody into your house, you shouldn't let them into your head. And the ultimate way to let them in your head is looking at your Twitter feed, looking at your mentions. That's like, come on in, you know, a hostile stranger. You know, <laughs> it's the craziest thing. And, and you know, you can actually, and, and people, trolls know this, by the way, trolls know perfectly that you can get to a famous person. You can walk into a famous person's living room and sit down next to her on her couch by, by tweeting at her. You know, and, and and she and she looks at right up on her mentions because people are horribly addicted. And there's a whole lot of neuroscience on the addiction of social media. It's just like the addiction to methamphetamines, to alcohol, to cigarettes, to pornography, to gambling, to all these bad things. It lights up your dopamine circuits. And so you get this spurt of this neuromodulator of anticipation of reward. And when you, you open up your phone and you click on the little bird, basically you're getting this neurochemical squirt into your brain saying there's going to be a reward and you can't not do it. And everybody can get addicted. Everybody can get addicted to that. So we have to, if you're going to be a little bit famous because of just the nature of your work, you have to, you have to defend yourself. You have to take care of yourself in ways that you, and it's, it's funny, you know, I know all kinds of people are like, yeah, yeah. You know, I work at night, I'm working away from home. And so I have these protocols so that there's, I'm not falling into stupid behavior. I don't drink when I'm on the road. I don't talk to strangers in bars. I don't, I'm, these are protocols that basically to, to keep myself safe. Well, Staying off of social media is a protocol just like that. Uh, those uh, those all sound like good protocols. I, I'm not on social media. Uh, somebody does that for me. I just I care very much what the people who know me and have known me for a long time think. Yeah. I just um, I've never been as smart as people perceived on the one or two good days I had in Congress, and I'm pretty sure I'm not as dumb as they thought I was on the the hundreds of bad days I had. I want to ask you about two more things because yeah. I I want to ask you if I were to if I were to cite for you the biggest impediment to my own happiness, it is unfairness. Mm. I, I think whenever people are treated unfairly, right, it not only impacts you, but sometimes it even forces you to reevaluate fairness as a virtue. In other words, if you're not going to treat me fairly, then it must not be a virtue. And it gives me license to treat you the same way. And right. I see it in politics. I see it in other forms of life. How, how would we overcome? We're all going to be treated unfairly. We're not going right. to get something we think we deserve. How do, how do we react to that? Yeah, it's pretty interesting that you say that. It doesn't actually surprise me that that is a fundamental value for you, Trey. I mean, I you know, every time I meet a prosecutor, what do all prosecutors have in common? They're outraged by the ultimate unfairness, which is the criminal exploitation of innocent people. That's what drives them around the bend. Is you know, somebody criminally exploits somebody who's completely innocent. There's literally nothing more unfair than that in our society. So, and 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 you you cared about that so much that you went to law school and then passed on the big salary to become a prosecutor. You were living that value. And then you, I know, I know your career in Congress, you were trying to embody that in the way that, that you tried to write and, and support and argue for legislation and against legislation under the circumstances. Life is unfair, but we can't be, we can't let down our guard and just accept it. You know, we, on the contrary, you know, this is one of the great virtues of, of all leaders of, 
of significant impact over the over the history of our civilization that they fight for people who are weaker than they are you know and that's a, that's really a fundamentally a question of fairness now i'm going to say this is what fairness is and that's what fairness is not everybody has to have the prudential judgment and the prayerful consideration of what that actually means you know fairness is funny because you know fairness or justice could be it, it could be you know meritocratic fairness which is to say to each one her or his due based on their hard work and personal responsibility or fairness could be redistributive fairness saying we all got to start and end equal and i get it that reasonable people disagree on what that's all about on the contrary meritocratic versus redistributive fairness is the essence of the debate between left and right in america today and and probably always will be and we need that kind of iron sharpening iron you know i as a conservative you as a conservative we need liberals reminding us that that pure meritocratic fairness is impossible and we need redistributive fairness so that people don't fall too far right and liberals need us to remind them that you can't have an excellent country if you're saying that merit is a myth right and, and so we need each other under these circumstances but the point is we got to keep fighting for it saying i'm never going to achieve it but part of my satisfaction in life is turning the dial on on, on, on these issues in ways that can actually help my sisters and brothers and getting satisfaction from that. Don't be discouraged by not solving the problem. Be encouraged by the fact that each one of us can actually make progress. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right. You got classes to teach and books to write and you've <laughs> written, you've written 12, right? Yeah. yeah. I didn't say I wrote 12 good ones though. No, well, look, I, I'd be shocked if any of your books were not good. Uh, I, 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 Tim Scott, I think, has read all 12 of, of them yeah. uh, and probably borrowed liberally without attribution from some that's of your That's the way ideas. I like it, man. It's like my ideas okay. are everybody's ideas. That's, that's flattery. <laughs> I want to ask you about something that was written a long time ago. I think it's pronounced Jyges, the Ring of Jyges, the fellow that put on the uh, the ring and it made him in, invisible. And <laughs> it's kind of a statement about human nature. This will not surprise you, Arthur. Prosecutors have a very low view of, 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 of humankind. Uh, there's a show called True Detective. I don't know whether you saw that or not. Do you see True Detective? No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, well, that's why you're watch happy. It? That's I why you're it. happy. No, it is the most depressing. There's a character, Matthew McConaughey plays a character called Russ Cole. And he thinks that we're nothing but an evolutionary misstep. That 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 that, that humans and their and their self awareness are just a, a, an evolutionary misstep. He's a it's a fascinating character. But if you have a dim view of the inherent nature of mankind, is it still possible to be happy? Yeah, absolutely, it is. You know, and it's funny because you know, as Christian people, we believe that or as Jews, for example, or as Muslims and, as, and many religious religions, we believe that people are fallen, you know, that, that, that men and women are fallen creatures that were sinners that were really, really imperfect, but capable of incredible good. You can hold these competing cognitions in your head, you know, and of course, if you're a cop or, you know, my son who's a Marine and you, know, you as a prosecutor, you're specializing in the predations of humankind. You know, you're you're kind of you're wallowing around in the muck a little bit. It's not like you win as a prosecutor. And it's like, you know, the great thing about this job is I meet so many wonderful people. You do meet plenty of wonderful people, but you're in the business of putting bad guys behind bars, quite frankly. So you have to remember that that life is a big mix. Life is a big mix of the good and the bad. And here's the key thing to keep in mind. 
one of the very interesting parts of research says that you got two frames that you can have on life, two frames that you can hold for yourself, two frames that you can teach your kids. One is the negative primal frame about life, which says life is crummy and some good things happen in it. Life is dangerous, but sometimes good things happen, right? Or you can have the positive primal, the love primal that says that fundamentally people are you know, pretty, there's a lot of good people out there. There's a lot of good things happening and the world is getting better, which by the way, I got the data, the world's getting better. I mean, the world's getting better. I mean, it, it's like, go back a hundred years, die of a splinter, <laughs> you know, anyway, so toothache forever, you know, one tooth by the time you're 58, like me, it's bad. But, but even beyond that, I mean, the world is cleaner, it's freer, it's richer, you know, there's no knock in the night or jackbooted thug because I said something mean about the president. God bless this country and the progress that we've made. And that's a second primal, which is that there are a lot of good people in the world is getting better, but it's not perfect. And we have to be careful and we have to look out for each other and we have to defend ourselves and other people and we have to stand up for the truth. And that second primal is the right way to live a happy life because we choose. You know, this is the thing, and the data are very clear that if you tell your kids it's a dangerous world, they're going to be less safe, more depressed, and more anxious. I got the data. If you tell your kids, dang, this is a world full of opportunity. It's unbelievable. But be careful about these five things. Your kids are going to be safer and happier and less depressed and less anxious. And the same thing goes for Trey and Arthur and everybody listening to us. It's a beautiful world full of all kinds of virtue and goodness and love. A lot of it's not perfect. But we have an opportunity as people to try to make it better, you know, not to be freaked out, not to be angry, not to be trashing everybody all the time and casting blame, but looking for solutions so that we can lift people up and bring them together and bring them into the, you know, the most beautiful things about this world that are the reasons that Trey and Arthur and a lot of listening to us have such good lives that at the core of it. So let's do that. I want to ask you about your own happiness for a second. You were in the uh, political epicenter of the world. For, for a number of years. Yeah, 11. And uh, you left uh, undefeated and unindicted, which is rare. You just <laughs> decided to go do something else. Yeah, retired at 55. Yeah. yeah. How long did it take you, if at all, to get that feeling you get in Washington of being in the political nerve center out of your system? It's tricky because you, it's, the, it's the show, right? It's like walking away from the New York Yankees. Well, you're still hitting. And there's a tendency to want to go back. I want to go back. And the whole first year, my wife was basically is like Prince Caspian in the Chronicles of Narnia, like tying me to the chair. No matter what I say, honey, don't let me go back. <laughs> it's the craziest thing. Um, and, but the reason, of course, was my pride. My, it was my pride. And I had to rebuild my life in a, in a, in a different kind of a way. And, and deep down, I knew that my decision was right. And all of us have to make this particular decision. You know, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and it's not going to last forever. And it's very important to leave on your own terms and to not idolize or objectify yourself in such a way that if things aren't perfect in your new way of life, that you're going to run back to the old one. That's what it came down to. So I'll turn the, I'll turn the tables, Trey. How about you? You walked away. You didn't have to. You just decided to do it. Uh, so tell me about how that felt. Um, you know, I liberating, um, it's liberating if you know, you're never going back because you can say what you want to say respectfully, but, yeah. um, but you can say what you want to say. And, and, you know, this district was once represented by Jim DeMitt, who some people consider to be kind of the godfather of the tea party movement. 
Right. It's a very conservative district. There's nothing in the world wrong with saying that I am no longer probably the best representative of where mm -hmm. this district is. There's nothing wrong with saying that. Right. I mean, I, I, are there, I shocked every teacher I ever had, not a single one of them thought that I, they thought I'd be in the criminal justice system, but not on the side I was on, so I'd already <laughs> shocked them. And, you know, and my parents can say, well, you know, we couldn't go to PTA meetings or parent teacher conferences, but our son at least wound up in the house. So it, it I don't know. I've always wanted to jump before I was pushed. That's true with every job I've ever had. Yeah. I just, I'd rather leave the mo maybe a nanosecond before you wanted me to leave. Yeah, no, there's a lot to be said. That's an old show business principle, you know, I leave them wanting more, leave maybe wanting just a crumb more, but leave them wanting a little more. And, you know, the key thing is basically, look, this is a, a big, wonderful life full of fun adventures and possibilities and, and hanging around because you only because you can't imagine yourself doing something else. It's just not the best approach, you know, and, and, and that's a lot of things that are along these lines. I mean, a lot of people stay with things that are institutions that are really not working for them. And, and that's what I write books about. My latest book is about that, about how to move from strength to strength in your life. It's based on the, you know, the 84th Psalm. It's from strength to strength. The righteous man goes from strength to strength. It's an ancient he Hebrew blessing. Michael el Chael means may you go from strength to strength. But you got to jump, man. I mean, you actually have to do it on purpose because it's not natural to want to make these changes. And changes are coming. You know, whether you look for them or not, changes are going to be coming. And if you can embrace that, you can if you can be thankful for that, if you can have the, the, the solidity of the family life and the love in your life that can actually give you the constancy that you need to make these changes, these vocational changes, these work changes, then you're going to be a lot happier. And um, like, I agree with you. I don't look back on the fact that I left Washington, D.C. when it was cooking um, with bitterness at all. I'm really, really now I'm just super glad that I did it because now I get to write, speak and teach about happiness. And you and I get to have a podcast on a beautiful afternoon and and we wouldn't have been able to do that when you were in congress and i was running AEI. well that's because i was such a backbencher you didn't know who i was i knew who you I, were what are you talking about you were on tv a lot <laughs> yeah usually for something dumb i did or said i no, you had my this. admiration because you were a man who said what you thought and then did what you thought as well uh, that was your man I, of conviction i tried it's not costless I, <laughs> I tried i losing is not the worst thing in the world arthur failing Failing to do what you believe or not being obedient is the worst thing in the world, but losing is not the worst thing in the world. Oh, no. On the contrary, it's part of how we understand who we are, actually, is when we stand up for what we believe and we're not rewarded for it. <laughs> I will. I want to give a shout out to a couple of guys. I'm also lucky. I know that you can do this, too. If I am dying to know what's going on, I talk to Tim Scott daily. I talked to Kevin McCarthy a lot. I, I still can call people and say, hey, what's what's really going on? I mean, yeah. I'm not asking for state secrets, but to have friends that are willing to let you still you know, live the one or two really interesting, fascinating days of the year that you would miss. John Radcliffe did it for me when he was there. So, yeah, no, I uh, I do what you do. I teach uh, at Walford and at the law school. Yep. Although from what I hear, there's a long waiting list to get into your class. And speaking of coercion, that's the only way they get them into my class. They have to 
force them to take my class on the criminal justice system. <laughs> I doubt it. Um, and by the way, I teach a class on the science of happiness, like free candy, kids. Of course, there's a waiting list. <laughs> do What do you do when they come to you and say, Professor Brooks, it would make me really unhappy to get a bad grade? Well, you know, the great thing about teaching at the Harvard Business School is that there's a grading distribution. I can't turn in my grades without the curve which means that 10% of my students have to get a, a three, which is basically a C. I can't give more than 20% A's and I can't give less than 10% C's. And the reason that they do that is because they want professors to not feel like they're ruining somebody's life. And so, and the truth is my students are fantastic. They're grownups and they're like, yeah, you know, I get it. You know, there's a curve. We all gotta live in the curve. <laughs> God, it would break. I mean, I didn't mind like putting people on death row, but it would kill me to give somebody a C. Yeah. In happiness. Yeah. It's like, you just got a C in happiness. <laughs> that would kill me. All right. If people want to find you, I know you, you're, you're in vanity, uh, not uh, Atlantic. The Atlantic. You're, yeah. you're in the Atlantic every uh, Thursday about, morning on the science of happiness. Yeah. You can read my new book. It's called from strength to strength, which is from penguin came out in, in February and, and arthurbrooks.com. Arthurbrooks.com is, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm not looking at that website, but you know you can go there and sign up for my newsletter and 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 get some good cheer and the signs of happiness and ways that you can be happier and bring more happiness to people in your community for people who are interested. Yeah, I'll tell you the last article you wrote, and and I am not known for my happiness or inspiring it in others, but I could not help but be encouraged uh, reading the piece you wrote um, on Seneca. I guess within the past week. So yeah, that's great. Thank you, Trey. I appreciate it an awful lot. You're bringing happiness to me. And uh, I'm so happy. I'm so delighted to see your success, you know, that you're spreading these good ideas. I mean, I'm telling you, a lot of people reached out when I was on your TV show from a lot of different walks of life. I heard from billionaires and plumbers. And uh, and that's pretty deep reach, man. Look, for, look at you. Well, I can tell you this. In South Carolina, the plumbers are billionaires. They make a <laughs> They make a lot more money than urologists do. I can tell you that. No, they're all like, if only they were roofers, it could be even better, right? Yes. God bless you, Arthur Brooks. Thank you for joining us. I'll look forward to visiting with you soon. Thanks, Trey. Great to see you. Keep bringing yes, the good cheer, man. Yes, sir. Take care. Thank you for spending another Tuesday with Trey. Please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or at foxnewspodcast.com. You've been listening to the Trey Gowdy Podcast on the Fox News Podcast Network. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.